Almost Awakened podcast, a no-nonsense approach to spirituality with your hosts, Brittany Hartley and Bill Reed. Here we dive deep into the wisdom traditions while acknowledging insightful breakthroughs in science, psychology, and human development. Our goal is to explore the good life and the very best of spirituality, no-nonsense required. Check us out at almostawaken.org, where you can check out past episodes, make a donation, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources we shared. And now, today's podcast episode. Brittany Hartley, how are you? Good. How are you, Bill? Happy anniversary. Look at that. 25 years. Me and my wife have been together. I still love her dearly, and we feel uh, like we're still rocking and rolling. She wrote a little sweet thing about you this morning that was really Aww, nice. But nice? I have bad news. You guys are going yeah. on a trip together, but the bad news is that there's six major planets in retrograde right now. So whatever Ooh. you have planned is just going to go to Is Mars hell. one of them? <laughs> I don't know. All I know is I, I follow a few you know tarot, ho- tarot kind of horoscope people because I always just want to see what they're doing. Yeah. And... Um, they're all going crazy, right? And and um, that this is just, you know, your life is just going to fall apart and the planets and all of that. So that is happening right now. So I just wanted to give you fair warning. I believe it. I just turned 44. My body is in retrograde. So I would assume that <laughs> I would assume the planets would be as well. Everything's deteriorating. Yeah. It's interesting yeah. how that would be such a self-fulfilling prophecy. I mean, I've seen posts that are like, you know, things are just going to go really awry in the next week. And so just really like, you know, just watch out for it and be aware that it's coming. And I feel like if you like enter your week thinking things are just going to really go amiss, I mean, that pattern is going to show up somewhere, you know? Yeah. yeah. Anyway, watch yeah, out, yeah. my friend. Okay. I'll, I'll try to be extra careful during, during this trip. <laughs> okay. But this week we have an awesome episode. There are some times where, um, you know, as Bill and I are preparing for an episode, we'll send each other articles, we'll send each other podcasts to try to make sure that we have a good understanding of the topic that we're talking about. But this one, I mean, I haven't seen anyone do a podcast and put together the numbers like we did this week. And so what we're really going to do is talk about um, Gen Z spirituality And the reason that we want to talk about this is if we want to get a sense of where religion is going, and this is what I did my master's degree on, because I want to know, okay, people are deconstructing. Where is this going? Nobody has any idea. And I think one answer to that as far as where is it going is what are the kids doing, right? Because as the older generations die, what are the kids doing for spirituality? Where are they going as their parents are deconstructing, as institutions are deconstructing? Um, And so this week, we're just going to pull up a bunch of surveys and numbers and really get a sense for what kind of this age group is doing as far as religion and spirituality, what's happening in the world of religion and spirituality, so we can see where this is going. Um, We talk a lot about deconstruction on this podcast and reconstruction, but we're kind of putting it together into a bigger movement than just, you know, you and me and the people listening. So, yeah, we should get a chance through this data to really get a feel of how the younger generation is separating themselves from their parents and their grandparents and uh, their great grandparents. And I think most of it, as we'll see, I think most of it is good. I think there's some negative here, too, that uh, that I hope we get a chance to kind of jump into. 
Yeah, they have their own strengths and they have their own challenges. I think what's interesting is because the internet was such an explosive thing, the difference between this generation and their parents and grandparents is just a wider divide than any other generation in history, right? Mm. And so it's really, if, you know, if you want to know where religion and spirituality is going, let's look to see what these kids are doing. And you have yeah. more experience with these guys than I do. You have kids who are in this age group. Um, and I really... I really don't. Um, the, I didn't know this till today. The, the generation after Gen Z is Generation Alpha, which would be more my kids. But you can tell me about what these kids are doing. I have no generation idea. Generation Alpha. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. So it starts over. All right. So first of all, who is Gen Z? We can bring this up here. Uh, Gen Z is anyone born from 19 or sorry, Gen X is anyone born from 1965 to 1980. So you'd be Gen X, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, baby born, baby boomers, 1946 to 1964 millennials, 1981 to 1996. So I'm an old millennial and then generation Z is 1997 to 2012, um, would be where Gen Z falls under. And the interesting thing about this generation is that they're sexually fluid more so than any other generation, racially diverse. It's a large part of the population. One thing that's really interesting about them is that they're biblically illiterate. Some of it is just the language of the King's James version of the Bible and, you know, them being on the internet so much and texting and all that, but they really, as a generation, have no idea really what's in the Bible, don't have a biblical worldview, don't get involved in theological debates, don't really understand what the atonement is or what it does or why it's needed. They just don't get any of that, it seems. And then something unique to them is that their dreams are to become financially independent follow their dreams, enjoy life and travel, and learn who they are. And that's a really big one. They really want, there's so much pressure in social media, and they want to figure out who am I? You know, what is my brand? That's a really important thing for them. Whereas if you ask the boomer generation, they would say something like, you know, I want to start a meaningful or a good career. I want to start a family. We're not seeing that as high priorities for Gen Z. They really want to travel and um, find some way to have financial security and have some and really know who they are. Uh, the only thing I would add to this little, you know, this kind of introduction is, Every generation has their challenges. Um, you know, generations in the past have had to deal with major world wars, um, uh, you know, economic collapses. My grandfather, who's passed away now, uh, was at the tail end kind of of the uh, being born in the Great Depression. And uh, that affects people. So the things that people deal with and parenting styles differ from generation to generation. So parents that came out of World War II raised their kids different than my parents who for the most part, other than, you know, a few hiccups with things like Vietnam and stuff had had a really smooth kind of non-traumatic events going on in the world. Um, and I think all of that plays a role in how, you know, a person grows up and what shapes their worldview. And so it's not just something like, oh, the Internet's here and it's safe to deconstruct religion. There's there's a lot more that goes into these ideas than than just that. 
Yeah, another interesting thing, and if you want to bring up slide two, Bill, another interesting thing is that as you talked about what are the big life events of that generation and World War II, obviously these parents, these dads especially came back very traumatized from that and that trickles down. But for this generation, it's um, it's so interesting that their parents were afraid of the godless communists. That was kind of their thing, the Cold War. But then this generation... Um, you know, talking about 9-11, 9-11 is the big historical event of, of my generation, but also kind of the generation after. And that's a different kind of enemy. They're not godless atheist communists. They're religious fundamentalists. And that affected them in a different way than like the Cold War kind of did for um, previous generations. So obviously the big thing about this, about Generation Z is, is the internet. Most of them use their phones for more than four hours a day. Most of them have it on them 100% of their day. Um, and it really changed this generation very quickly. So because they just, in one day, they can see thousands of stories and um, perspectives more so than any other human person in history. They um, are the most raciously, racially, religiously, sexually diverse generation in history. And they understand that people have different beliefs and perspectives and experiences, and they have a huge appreciation for social inclusiveness. That's their thing, right? And sometimes we call them, you know, snowflakes for it, but it comes from this idea that they see through the internet that there's a lot of different ways of looking at the world. Yeah, they're just to say here, and I don't need to necessarily add something at every point, but in terms of the things that awaken people, anytime you get exposure to a larger world than the lens you see through. So uh, folks who read lots of books, folks who travel a lot and expose themselves to different environments, different geographies. Um, uh, oh, I'm trying to think offhand. Folks who use psychedelic drugs, that's another one. So anytime you either alter your consciousness or experience a worldview that isn't natural to you, uh, you tend to be prone to become more inclusive, more diverse in the ways that you just mentioned. And I think that's at least of note, like there are certain tricks to get there. Mm. Yeah. Travel. And when you're online, you're really kind of, you're able yeah. to travel all the time. Right. And none of our, our grandparents and our great grandparents, they lived in one area with one kind of community and they would make a trip once in a while and have a little bit of a culture shock and maybe bring that back, but not in the sense of every day hearing someone's story on the internet, multiple, you know, multiple times from all over the world. Um, and they just think that that is normal and it really changed this generation in such a drastic way. So another thing that's interesting is that the family is not important to the sense of self. So they admire their parents, obviously, like they still need their parents, but more than half of Gen Z says that you know, and still more than half of Gen Z says that their parents are their primary role model, but it's not necessary for their sense of self. They don't need um, their family to help them create their identity in the world, which is super interesting. That's a major departure from other generations. Right. They sort of had catalysts that they, that helped them individuate without really needing what past generations have had, which is either significant time or sometimes never to individ uh, individuate at all. Right. So if you were grown, you know, if you were growing up and I'm Jewish because my family's Jewish and their grandparents, my grandparents are Jewish and every, 
and that that gave kids an instant this is who I am because this is the tribe around me um, because Gen Z sees that kind of everyone is different and everyone um, has different perspectives. They just don't need their family as much to create their identity. They are in much earlier in life having to create their own identity. And as you're saying, individuating much earlier um, than, than any of us really did. Usually we didn't see that until late adulthood when you start to kind of break away from your parents. I mean, they're doing that much younger. Yeah. I've got a 16 year old who, I didn't, let's see here. I'm trying to think offhand if he falls, I think he's after this whole thing. Um, nope. He would be that, right. He'd be that generation mm -hmm. uh, Gen Z. So my 16 year old is kind of just beats to the tune of his own drum. He doesn't care what, you know, the kids in school say mom and dad, it really doesn't matter what we say. He's going to kind of do his own thing. And he's, he's a good kid. He makes good choices, but I have a lot, I've had a lot less influence on him than I did my other three. Hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. I remember, um, when I was first going through my faith crisis back when we first met, you know, over a decade ago, and it was so interesting that I really thought like, I think I'm the only Mormon. I had this thought, I think I'm the only Mormon or I'm, I'm the only person going to church who doesn't believe it, but I still kind of want to go because I, I have some benefits or whatever. And because there wasn't like online groups where I realized that other people had this experience, I really thought I must be the only one in the whole world. <laughs> It's such a, it's almost mm. such, it's almost a vain thought. I must be the only one in the whole world who kind of looks at religious history and I see that it's not true, but I see the psychological benefits and without finding people online, you, I found online, other people I find online. Um, I, I really wouldn't have ever been able to find my people and felt like, oh, I'm not the only one who experiences religion that way. And so I think that's part of it. It's, it's much easier to find your niche because you can go to any Reddit sub, you know, subgroup, whatever, and find your people who are interested in the same weird thing that you're interested in. And that took a long time. I mean, that took a long time before the internet to try to curate those people around you and find those people. So I think that's part of it. You're safer to individuate also because you see you can you can kind of curate these groups online of, oh, these people are like me. It's okay to be like me. Yeah. Yeah. You're you're not isolated. You're not by yourself. You're not alone. You're not the only person in your city that you know of that has uh has a uh, leaning towards this or that. Like there's other people that are very easy to find. Yeah. Yeah. And then a wide variety of friends. This one is, is different boomer, like the boomer generation. It's hard for them to even understand this. So almost half of Gen Z are friends with someone who are vastly different from them, like really, really different upbringing and like friends with them, like good friends with them, as opposed to their grandparents. Our grandparents rarely had to rub elbows with people who had really significantly different life experiences, like sitting down some, you know, your grandparent and sitting them down next to someone who uh, is trans or something and have them listen to their story. There was just no way for those two people to sit with each other and hear each other's stories and be friends like that just never really happened. 
Um, and so they never had some of the cognitive dissonance or pushback to their own beliefs because they never uh, bumped into people who were significantly different than them. And so their access to, they have just an access to a wide variety of human experience, more so than kind of our grandparents' generation can really understand. Don't you think this is going to be a huge one in terms of how these kids parent the next generation and then generation after that once these kids have had all of this exposure and interaction with people who are very different from them, I can't help but think that another generation or two and you end up with so much more inclusivity, uh, acceptance of, of people living out their life in their own way, um, racial equality, uh, gender equality, uh, all of those things I think are going to be deeply impacted by this generation becoming parents. Yeah, I think I think so too. I think it comes with its own set of problems too, as as all as all things do. Um, when you have when you have this huge encouragement to be accepting of everything and be inclusive of, of everything, I think it would be really hard to parent f from that place as mm. you know as a Gen Z parent, because how do you stand up for you know against things that are wrong? you know, that would be, or morally wrong or makes any lines in the sand, making lines in the sand of saying, we're going to say that this is not okay is very difficult when you want to be inclusive of everything. Right. Mm -hmm. And so we talk about this sometimes politically that, you know, the left will has this huge message of being inclusive and um, liberal values and values for women. And they never want to say anything against something like Islam or like fundamentalist Islam or uh, women in their clothing because they want to accept that these are some people's point of view, but the actual science shows that, you know, when, when women feel the pressure to dress in a certain way, uh, even if that's their choice, you can see that it gets really tricky there. And then how do you even say, I don't think this is right. Uh, when you try to be accepting of everything. I think that's where it gets really tricky for Gen Z. Love it. Uh, so their issues. I'm curious to see if this shows up in your kids. Um, so high, high, high anxiety. So underneath this expansive worldview is a ton of insecurity. So there's pressure to find themselves as people especially like kind of their brand and what their thing is, social media presence, become financially successful. Obviously the world has changed enough that they can't just go to college and get a job and um, have these like perfectly made paths that some of our grandparents had. It's a little bit more tricky. And then, um, you know, there's 9-11, there's a recession. The teens are anxious about their future. Um, and then also just this deep, deep insecurity. So there's, um, there's multiple reasons for this. So beneath kind of this online veneer of happiness, we're showing that Generation Z experiences more loneliness, more anxiety, and more stress than any other generation. So I think, I think we'll get to this statistic later, but I think it's something like 78% of Gen Z feels anxious and lonely and disconnected and, and stressed out. So, you know, the world is, um, deconstructing, institutions are deconstructing. How do I get a job? How do I find out who I am? Um, 
the there's no mentors for Gen Z. If if their parents have left organized religion, there's really no ability for teens to be around adult mentors that kind of keep their eye on them and give them good advice and that they can talk to. Um, the institutions that used to provide that are kind of crumbling, right? And so we just have a ton of anxiety that lies under the surface. So the pressure of matching their real life to what others post online, especially body image issues for young women, um, insecure, they're just insecure young brains seeking for identity, seeking for structure and finding just a world of complexity. And it gives them a ton of anxiety. Yeah. So I've got one of my four kids who feels a lot of that. And then two of the leftover three have a higher degree of anxiety than I had growing up. Um, I don't, I wouldn't call it debilitating or severe, but it's certainly increased over what I felt. And, and another thing just maybe to think about in, in this particular uh, section is that they live in a world now where you can really have your life messed up from people very far away. So it can be something as small as like identity theft or cyber attacks, things like that, right? But then you also live in a world now where uh, a country on the other side of the globe can push a red button and send nuclear bombs, right? And, um, and, and I think people are all aware that there's only so much of that that the planet could take. And so we all live kind of recognizing that things are way more fragile. When I was young, the world felt really safe to me. And I think our kids are very aware, having watched the, the storming on the Capitol, having watched accusations of election fraud, um, knowing Russia's attacking Ukraine and knowing that Russia keeps threatening to nuke people. I think we live in a world now that folks realize that things could go south in the snap of a finger. Yeah, I, I do get I, I had the same experience where growing up, it felt like the world was stable. Right. It felt like, you know, other than 9-11, which obviously shattered some of that veneer, but it felt like the world wasn't going to like topple tomorrow. And something with the social media and especially kind of the news, the way that it is today, it does feel every day like we are on the brink. And I've met kids. I actually um, had a client uh, who was a teenager. It was one of my few teenagers that I actually got to work with who was struggling at school because she had this sense, and I don't think you and I had the same sense as teenagers. She had this sense that the, you know, with climate change, that the world is ending, and that these little games with our, with uh, trying to get good grades for colleges, for jobs that won't even exist by the time I get there, what is even the point? And so she couldn't apply herself at school because she genuinely felt like we are on the edge of uh, economic and nature and societal collapse. And she just felt that every day. And like, there are a lot of kids who really are taking on that level of existential angst much, much earlier than any of us did. Yeah, completely. A again, I see some of that as well. Hmm. All right. So the next slide here. So Generation Z and, and religion. Gen Z is leaving organized religion. Um, a variety of studies report 50 to 70% of young Christians walk away from the church by the time that they're in college. And then 79% of young people say that when they did stop believing, it was during their teen years. So they still go to church with their parents if their parents go to church. But by the time that they're in college, most of them stop attending. 
Um, and when you ask them, when did you actually stop believing? They'll say it was much earlier, earlier. They'll say it was when they were a teenager, but then sometimes they continued to attend with their parents until they turned 18 and then they stopped. Um, so they are kind of the majority of them. And we're going to be specifically talking about Christianity because we're just talking about America here. Uh, Gen Z in different uh, countries will have different um, experiences. But in America, they're just not going to, and that number is increasing. They're not coming back to the cues, to the pews. So whatever churches are doing, um, it has to be different than the way that it's done before. And churches are just scrambling to figure out how do we get these kids to come back. What do you, what do you think? So obviously access to information and exposure to different people. So religion is often imposing a worldview that makes us's and them's. And these kids just have too much exposure to diversity in a thousand different ways to just swallow that hook, line and sinker. But it does seem as though there may be something else to this. And I, I don't, I don't know what it is. Maybe we can flesh it out, but it feels as though, um, younger folks feel a whole lot safer bucking the trends of their parents and grandparents than, than my generation or my parents' generation would have been. And I don't, I don't know quite what that is, or can I, I don't know if I can put my finger on it, but it may be parenting style too. Like maybe, maybe my generation as parents allowed the younger generation a safer space to do something right to, to do something different, to, to have a different view, to believe in some other way. Yeah. I mean, when you're talking about our grandparents generation, if you were in a Catholic group and you lived, mm. doesn't even matter. Okay. You lived somewhere. Everyone in the community went to church on Sunday, right? There was really how you're going to get a job and your family name. I mean, that is how you're going to make it in the world. Right. And so even though some people may not have believed then everybody just went anyway, right? Because leaving that community meant that you were totally kind of lost in the world, you know, whereas these kids, because they see the world and then because they see if I'm not Catholic, I see a thousand Catholics or non-Catholics every day yeah. leading, fulfilling, flourishing lives. Maybe if I leave this uh, safe space, I'm not going to die. Mm. And I don't think our grandparents and great grandparents, I don't think they had the opportunity to, to see that because really the reality was if you leave this town, you're leaving with no resources, no tools, no people know you totally vulnerable to, you know, if you got sick or whatever. And so you just kind of stay with what is because the entire structure is built around. We all go to church at this time. Um, but because I think that they see that there's so many other ways to flourish as a human that are not dependent on this one particular way, I think they just have more permission to say, if I don't do this, I'm not going to die. Right. I can leave this tribe and not going to and I'm not going to die. And I think the other thing that's interesting, and we'll get to this statistic later, is that some people think, oh, they're leaving church. They're becoming godly, godless atheists. And although that number is rising on the whole, the answer is no, they're not. They still mostly believe in God. And the very interesting statistic is that they still mostly believe that Jesus was a real person. 
and probably was raised from the dead. And so when we talk about leaving the church, this isn't that they're having at 16 this complex, I'm an atheist because I've done 20 years of biblical study and I think that Jesus was a historical person, but I don't think that did it. Like, it's not that complex yet, right? Mm -hmm. They're 16. It, they, mm -hmm. it can't be, right? They just haven't studied enough. And so they still believe overall, more than 50%, um, believe in God, believe in Jesus. But the really interesting statistic is that 60% of Gen Zs who report themselves as Christian report that they find God more outside of the church. And mm. so leaving the church doesn't mean I did this kind of, you know, long biblical deconstruction. Leaving the church often for these kids is I still believe in God. I still want spirituality, but I'm not getting it here. And that is the interesting statistic to me for what yeah. this generation's doing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It, it seems as though, and again, well, this will play out in other slides as well, but it seems as though there's this um, developing distrust in institutions, this developing distrust in systems. And this is a generation that um, realizes that its government to some degree spies on us, right? Like there was the, the, the WikiLeak uh, docs that came out that showed that smart TVs with cameras, like actually in the documents, it says like, yeah, the government has access to watch you and so I think they do have a level of distrust. They they sense that not everybody's on the same team that they said they were on and that privacy and um, uh, rights may be a little more fragile than I thought in the 1980s. Yeah, and churches used to be able to hide and some of them still have the um, kind of pattern of if we can actually hide this so that nobody finds out about it so that the church is still kind of the center of the community. But with the internet, the kids know, you know, about sexual abuse in churches and institutions. Like they, they know about it. You can't hide it from them. Do you know any churches that hide things? Not any. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Not any. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. Um, and so the, I mentioned this before, but uh, the interesting thing is that with each generation, the uh, there's a decline in the biblical worldview, meaning what what's happening in the world is, you know, the, the Bible has kind of all of this mapped out. This is what happened and Jesus is coming and the whole story. So it's 4% of Gen Z have a biblical worldview. And it's said in the study, and I'm using this Barna group, um, which is a, a big study that they did on Gen Z spirituality and religion. And they published a book with all these findings. So if you're super interested in that, um, it's all contained in a book that I actually went through in my, in my program, but it, in the results, it said they sense the absurdity of that view and they don't give it the time of day. So what's interesting is that older generations can get into debates about is God an interventionist God or what are the hoops to jump through towards salvation? How should baptism be? Should it be a sprinkling or should, should it be immersion? And all of those debates can happen, but Gen Z is not involved in any of it. They don't get it. They don't know the basics of Christian theology. They don't really understand what the cross is all about. Um, and so you'll get a lot of books that'll talk about uh, from, from various churches or theologians that will talk about if we can just get Generation Z to understand all this theology and all this theological history, then they'll stay, then they'll be. And th the truth is they're just not interested. That's not going to be their hook. 
they, they don't get it. They don't want to read the King's James version of the Bible. It just doesn't resonate with them at all. And so what mm. does Christianity do when um, you have 2000 years of um, interesting and complex ideas of Christian theology and, and um, this whole history and you have an entire generation that just does not care about it. I just don't care about it. Yeah. <laughs> what do and they I do? Yeah. And I think to some degree, you know, my parents' generation had to some degree religion kind of shoved down their throat. And I think they maybe started to develop kind of an aversion to that. And little by little, here we go. It just softens up generation after generation. Um, it'd be interesting to go back even another generation or two and see what that number would have been. Cause I imagine the, the degree upward would have been a little more significant, maybe 18 to, you know, 25% or so. Um, once you go back another generation or two. Yeah. Yeah. And the fight, you know, it's been said that the fight against a biblical worldview and a scientific worldview, um, that the Bible, the biblical worldview is losing quite a bit of ground and loses more ground every year. And so something interesting that I wanted to bring up later, but, um, I was listening to Daniel Dennett this morning, one of the four horsemen of new atheism. And he talked about how religion has changed more in the past hundred years than the 2000 years before that, because we have such, you know, we have such scientific information in our lifetime. We've seen Christianity be extremely resistant to evolution, to basically being forced to accept it. That has never happened in the past. When, when you're talking about the numbers before boomers, Christianity never had to do anything. <laughs> they could do whatever they wanted. <laughs> it was just reality. It was, it was in all of, it was just embedded in the system. This is reality. And you could kill scientists if you wanted to and that kind of thing. But in our generation, we've seen, or in our lifetime, we've seen um, evolution being extremely resisted to uh, theologians now saying this is how God, you know, they have different ways of explaining how God uses evolution and the Bible's still true or whatever. Um, but that those big shifts they've never had to do before, and they're having to do it on multiple fronts. And so the prediction right now is that religion is going to change more in the next 20 years than it has had to even in the past hundred years or the 2000 years before that. So the next 20 years, just because of the explosion of information, churches will have to adjust and change more than any other time that they've had to. And you sense that churches are trying to figure out how do we stay relevant, right? Because people are leaving. How do we stay relevant? And so I think that's what makes this so interesting is because we're watching that churches are going to have to change, but we nobody really knows where that's going, which makes this such an exciting field for me. Yeah, it'll be interesting, right? Another generation or two and see see how well Christianity and religion generally is faring. And, and I, I don't think it's going to be better than today. I think it's going to be even worse. I think that's one exciting thing about this podcast is that if we were doing a podcast on, I don't know, some time in Christian history, eventually you'd kind of run out of material. Like you've gone over the people, you've gone over all the ideas. But I think what enables us to hopefully be able to continue this podcast is that if in the next 20 years, religion is going to change more than any thousand year period of history in the past, 
then we're going to be able to watch that journey, right? We're going to be able to mm. see where it goes and be a part of those conversations. So that's, I mean, that's a personal plug. That's why this mm. is so exciting to me and why I wanted right. to dig into this. All right. So the next slide here, and if you're listening to this in podcast form and you want to see these, you can, you know, hop onto our YouTube channel and be able to see these links that we're talking about, um, is why they leave, right? So researchers have been asking young ex-Christians specifically why they leave the church and their answers are interesting. And so here are the most popular responses based on four different studies. There are too many questions that can't be answered. I believe in science and not miracles. I realized the story was like Santa or the Easter bunny. I have a hard time believing that God would allow so much evil or suffering in the world. I had a bad experience at church. I don't see women, people of color, and LGBT people treated kindly at church, and the church is not relevant to me personally. So 59% of Gen Z says the church is not relevant to me. And then 61% of Christians, so those who I self-identify as I am Christian, I believe in God, I even still believe in Jesus, say that they find God elsewhere. They're finding God outside the church. So I think that that was one of the most interesting statistics is that the majority of, of Christian Gen Z um, are uh, really finding God outside the pews. And so 60% of Gen Z youth believe that Jesus was a real person who was actually raised from the dead. 70% of Gen Z believe that Jesus is the son of God. And that is surprising considering that only 25% believe that the Bible is accurate in all of the principles it teaches. So isn't that interesting? So we have 4% of Gen Z that believe that, you know, the, the biblical worldview, we have about a quarter saying that they believe that the Bible is accurate. So, so pretty low, but then 60, 70% still believe in God and Jesus. They haven't replaced it with anything. They're just not finding God and Jesus at church. Yeah, it, it would be, it would be, well, I don't know what the right word is. It would be um, expected that these two things would go line in line, right? Like they would, they would be backing away from the church and losing belief, which tells you that the church really has an opportunity here, right? Because the, it sounds like, and looks like these kids still want to, at least right now, or they believe in it and they want to participate, but it's not, that's not where they're getting their bucket filled. Um, it, it's not interesting when I read the answers that are on the screen right now, God's not, uh, church is not, sorry, church is not relevant to me personally. I find God elsewhere. I can teach myself what I need to know. The rituals are empty. I don't like the people who are there. I think church is out of date. They're basically saying I'm bored. This isn't interesting. It's not filling my bucket. It's not giving me anything to go out into the real world and to feel more capable. It's like this huge surge of this population who's spiritually homeless and all the churches are trying to figure out how do, you know, how do we provide shelter? How do we provide the place where all of these essentially spiritually homeless people are going to go? And nobody's quite figured it out um, as far as institutional churches, but you're right. There is an opportunity because People think that if you leave church, oh, you're just, you know, a godless atheist, you have no path, you have no beliefs, you've lost your beliefs. And the statistics are saying that's not true. They still believe in God. They're trying to find God. 
And so if they do, there may be, you know, a flocking to some particular something, um, but they're just not finding God at church and they still believe in God. Yeah. Notice too, we, we noted that this generation has more anxiety and notice that often the mechanisms of religion, at least in the past up until now, have been things of shame and guilt. And I don't think these kids are going to tolerate that. They can already sense that they already, they're anxious. They can already sense that they're dealing with some negative emotions that maybe their parents didn't deal with. And I don't think more shame and guilt is the solution. The church is going to have to figure out, and I think the secret here, the church is going to have to figure out a way that it lets go of the BS that is demonstrably BS in the eyes of these kids. Like they've got access to the internet. They can go on their phone and they can find historical data points and conversations from really intelligent people at just in just a couple of seconds. So the church is going to have to let go of the BS and figure out a way to go, look, we're just going to have to talk to you straight. Here's, here's why religion and ritual and all these things are important. And as you and I both know, they may not be able to do that. It, there may be too much institutional ego to admit that science and the progress of the world was always ahead of the church anyway. Yeah, that is such an interesting point that I didn't think of is that this generation, if you threaten that they're going to go to hell, it just doesn't even land. Right? Yeah. And it might even be too overwhelming. Like, come on, I'm already, I already have enough anxiety about the things in day to day. I don't want to uh, yeah, deal with that. I have anxiety about who I am and if there's even going to be a planet tomorrow, your little yeah. threats about whatever hell you believe in. It's, yeah. it's not You can't use that tool anymore. That's mm -hmm. an old tool that's gone out of right. date. I didn't even think about that at all. That's super interesting. Um, all right. So next slide here. So then the rise of, oh, so non-Christians. So that was kind of the Christian Gen Z. And so non-Christians barriers to faith. So when you ask um, Gen Z who do not identify as Christian, why wouldn't you go to church? Why wouldn't you go to a Christian church? Why wouldn't you join religion? They say, um, I have a hard time believing, again, that a good God would, have, would allow evil and suffering. So the problem of evil. Christians are hypocrites, which is interesting. I believe science refutes too much of the Bible. I don't believe in fairy tales. There are too many injustices in the history of Christianity. That's interesting. Right. Why I, are they a moral authority? Like, why do you set yourself up as a moral authority when, when you've screwed people over for 2000 years? Yes. And you can't, you can't hide it anymore and you can't whitewash the mm -hmm. history anymore and you can't nope. threaten me with hell anymore. It's nope. just there. The reality is there, right? I used to go to church, but it's just not important to me anymore. And then I had a bad experience at church with a Christian. So those were in order. So the first, so the highest one is that I just can't believe that there's a good God, the good God that Christians believe in with this much um, evil and suffering. And I mean, they can, they can go where our grandparents were never able to go. I mean, they can turn on the TV and watch a movie about the slums of India. That's powerful. Like most of our generation never got to really um, have those kinds of experiences and they have to face that again much earlier in life. And they just don't believe in this Christian loving all powerful God because of what they're seeing in the reality in the world. Yeah. The institutional church isn't meeting both groups expectations and hence it is less or unuseful, less mm. useful or unuseful. Mm. All right. So this this chart that I'm showing is a little bit more complex, but there's two really, really interesting lines here. So this is the rise of the nuns. 
uh, meaning that when you're asked about, you know, what religion are you, they would just they would just circle none. And so American religion overall is experiencing kind of its flock away from the pews. In 1986, 10% of young adults answered the answer, gave the answer none when responding to a survey about religious affiliation. But by 2016, that figure had shot up to 40%. And when you're talking about, you know, 30 points just in 20 20, 30 years. I mean, that, that's a huge, huge shift really fast in, you know, when you're talking about human statistics. And so that number is actually rising. So now we're in 2022, it's been another five years and that figure is closer to 50%. And so for the first time in American history, Protestant Christianity does not represent the majority of Americans. And so, you know, as recently as 2009, um, that shift happened where we are no longer a majority Christian nation. And if you are a Christian, that's going to feel really threatening. I understand that that would feel really threatening. I heard a really interesting analogy that um, how would you react if, you know, aliens came to the planet and all of a sudden all the kids started to really want to do alien culture, whatever it is, and they stop playing baseball and they stop playing piano and they stop doing all the humans things that we do and they just started doing alien things. That would feel really threatening. That would feel like, but we've played baseball in our family for a hundred years. We watch it every Sunday. We've, this is our way of life, right? Mm. And that same threat is how Christian religion feels right now is that the kids are doing things that, you know, we just don't even recognize anymore, but we've played baseball for forever. It is a good way of life. It is a beautiful thing. Um, and, and so you can see why they're feeling very threatened at this time, because of course their way of life is now no longer the majority in America. And so all it's interesting that not all nuns are atheists. So 13% of Gen Z identify as atheists. That's really high for atheism, but it's not by any means a majority, right? So 4% of boomers were identified as atheists. Uh, so that number tripled, but it's still, I mean, it's still a minority of atheism. Just the only thing here, I mean, I noticed like Catholic and evangelical seem to have like these opposite trajectories in the early 90s. Um, and most of these, they're losing ground pretty slow. But I, I don't know what they mean exactly by mainline Christianity. I was looking it up as you were as you were sharing your last set of thoughts. Um, it says here mainline Protestant churches uh, are a group of Protestant denominations in the United States, uh, you know, that differ in contrast in history and practice with evangelical fundamentalists or charismatic. So they're not those ones, they're the others. And, and the ones they listed were like the American Baptist, Disciples of Christ, the Episcopal Church, Evangelical Lutheran, Presbyterians, United Church of Christ, United Methodist Church. Mm -hmm. So to me, it seems like much more of like the softer Christian faiths, right? Yeah. So and they've Baptist... lost a lot of ground. Yeah, Baptist, Lutheran, Presbyterian, those kinds had the drop and then the nuns kind of took all those numbers. Yeah. And then evangelical is, um, you know, there's a fade, especially as evangelical Christianity really got involved into politics. And we know that Gen Z does not like this. They know mm. that Gen Z is not a fan of uh, kind of the gun, Jesus, 
like, you know, the second amendment, Jesus, like that whole mix, they're just not buying this, this evangelical political Jesus, right? It's a very unique kind of Jesus. It's, it's very different than, you know, the social justice leftist version of Jesus. These are two really, really different people. Um, yeah. The rights version of Jesus and the left. Um, but they're still very powerful in America. They still they still have numbers in America. But the yeah the the Lutheran Presbyterian Baptist that kind of um, that kind of Christianity just huge decline and and an uptick in atheists and an uptick really in nuns that I'm spiritual. I still believe in God more than half of Americans still believe in God, but I don't identify with a specific religion. That's what's yeah. happening. Every single line there is losing ground to one degree or another, and the nuns are picking up all of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the another interesting thing on this map is that the one that stays the most steady is Jew is the Jews, and that's because because you can be a secular Jew, you can always claim that you're a Jew because be if you say I'm a Jew, that could mean that I'm ethically. Jewish. That could mean that I'm Orthodox Jewish. That could mean I'm an atheist, but I'm Jewish. Um, and so they've, what Judaism has been able to do, and, and we can talk about this too, is that um, religions usually do one of two things when they're really threatened. They either become super, super Orthodox and the identity markers go up as far as who's in and who's out and a lot of obedience narratives and this is the line and the world is evil, but stay here, that kind of stuff. You can go that route um, or you can shift. And so what Judaism has done and the reason that it's still alive, even though it's one of our oldest religions, is that they shifted. They've, they've really let go of almost every truth claim that they used to hold. And so what's left really is culture. Right. Judaism is much more of a culture than than a truth claim kind of religion. And so it stays about the same because the culture continues year after year because people's beliefs are able to shift still within Judaism. Um, and so that number just stays the same. And it may just stay the same because it's such a cultural thing without the pressure of having to believe this or that, which which gives it some longevity. Um, and then evangelical is still powerful because they still have that. This is the way. And. Uh, this kind of fear message, which still um, is a powerful kind of political message in, in America. And then we see a lot of, uh, you know, churches declining. Yeah, there's not a whole lot of secular Methodist. Right, right. Here's a question. If you if if somehow like tomorrow, if you could be a secular Mormon, would you go back? Like if that space was really made? If you could be a secular Mormon the way that people are a secular Jew and you just show up to the events and you don't have to believe in anything and you just still show up to... And they're not going to say really mean shit about me? Yeah. <laughs> yeah then I don't know. Um, I think that's almost kind of like the community of Christ, right? Like they're really soft and easy and I don't know. I, I, I Probably not. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, probably I, not. I do love like the... What the cool thing about Judaism to me is that you just have this really rich liturgical calendar. So every other day is a holiday of something because they've just been around for so long. And I think I'm envious of that because I love um, how it's like, oh, today is Saint whatever day and we're reminded to be grateful or today is the day of forgiveness 
and everyone in the community will go up to each other and will forgive each other for, you know, the, the spats mm. that we've had in the past year. And so it's this kind of like rhythm of like continual story and heroes and virtues and actions. And um, yeah, I kind of like that. That That's really cool. I've always been envious of that. Yeah. I mean, if I could show up at the ward Christmas party um, and participate in service projects and again, their rhetoric was kind to people yeah. who deconstruct and step away. And and the bishop was an open atheist because, I mean, the amount of atheist rabbis in places like New York City, I mean, just astounding. I mean, there's there's tons of atheist rabbis. Yeah, that's a crazy idea because Mormonism has no space for that. But yes, if, if it was soft in its rhetoric and it made room for non-believers to participate without being second-class citizens, then yeah, I, I, maybe, maybe that would mm -hmm. happen. Hmm, interesting. Yeah, I've always been jealous of people who have like an atheist rabbi and then you do all the rituals because they're meaningful, but without any supernatural, they've been able to make that jump and which is why their number stays the same. Yeah. Interesting. All right. So next slide here. By the way, one yeah. reason for that, you, the old, you know, they're stuck using the old writings to some extent, right? Whereas Christianity gets to go like, oh, we did away with the Old Testament. Jesus fulfilled the law. And Jesus, for the most part, says pretty healthy things. And you can kind of parse out the, the community's rules from Jesus's teachings. And so there was kind of a way to go like, hey, whereas the, the Jewish people have their set of uh, laws, commandments, historical documents, and it probably is easier in that older tradition to go like, oh, that doesn't make sense with my modern worldview. Whereas Christianity can kind of dispose of the Old Testament where it needs to and claim that Jesus has given them something different. And so maybe it's not as stark of a difference. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I think the tough thing with with Jesus is that we all each church claims such a different Jesus and that and then if your Jesus is leading that church then that gets really messy right because yeah i mean the diff if you gathered a room of here's all the religions kind of idea of what Jesus is and you actually put those people in a room that would be a really diverse you know group of people that we're trying to get from one person so i mean Jesus is a real battleground for sure I love conservative American Jesus. He's <sighs> he's pretty cool. <laughs> he's interesting. He's uh, the gun thing is always interesting yeah. to me. The yeah. Jesus, you know, with the guns like this that I see yeah. pictures of. All right, so we're, we'll do politics for a second here. We won't do it too much. And you know, on this podcast, we'll never really like go into our political candidates or anything like that. We're just talking about numbers here. So it would, everybody it would violate here. our. It would violate our 501c3 anyway. Yes. So we're not, we're, yeah, we're not going to talk about, you know, who we voted for or, or how you should vote or anything like yeah. that. We're just going to discuss the numbers here. So politics really affects religion by the 1990s. So young liberal Christians break away from Christianity in the 1990s after observing kind of the powerful role that Christianity played in conservative politics. So what happens is in the 1960s, 
There's this kind of rise of secular culture, Roe versus Wade, no-fault divorce laws, sexual revolution, all the 60s stuff. And Christianity felt really threatened. And so what it did is because it felt threatened, they said, we need to become more politically powerful because we are losing, right? This scary, secular 60s, psychedelic, sexual, whatever culture, um, it does not represent us. And so we need to become powerfully powerful politically. And so the Republican party kind of welcomed this white, wealthy, conservative Christian group as its base. And within a decade, the religious right became the major fundraisers for the Republican party. And you can see this in movies like, um, I just watched the eyes of Tammy Faye. Did, have you watched that one? Mm. Tammy Faye. Um, Anyway, you know, it's talking about how, you know, these these really big, you know, big church kind of people were really involved into politics and really pouring a lot of money into politics. And um, so then by 1980, the, the Republican platform really wanted to represent conservative Christian views on, you know, sex, families, abortion, school prayer, evolution, other issues where Christians had a dog in the fight. And it wasn't like that in the 50s. It wasn't like that before Christianity felt really threatened from the 1960s. Um, and then another thing for this, another thing that happened with the shift is after 9-11, like I said, the enemy wasn't godless communists. It was religious radicals. So nuns could come out of the closet without sounding like Soviets. So, you know, in during the Cold War, if you came out as an atheist, it would be threatening to your career. It would be threatening because the enemy um, are godless Soviets, right? And so we could come out and say that. And so then what happens is um, one of the reasons for religious decline and one of the reasons that Gen Z, especially liberal Gen Z, is just resistant to religion is because of this allergic reaction to the religious right. The mixture of politics and Christianity threatened kind of the long-term sustainability of Christianity because are you about Jesus or are you about winning this political battle? And it's Gen Z who's really watching that and saying, if if this is religion, if your gun Jesus and all of this is religion, I don't want any part of religion. So they did get more powerful. Christianity did get more powerful, but they paid a cost for it. Yeah. It's going to be interesting to watch presidential elections going forward. Up until now, it has been crucial that every candidate running for office claims some sort of religious belief, right? And yet we're becoming a uh, a, a nation that is making more and more space for people to not believe. And whereas in the past, admitting that you were an atheist would be kryptonite to a political campaign, the day is coming when, again, it, it, maybe it's not the next election, maybe it's not three or four elections, but at some point, folks who really don't care about the church and 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 maybe even a significant number of atheists will make up the majority of people who go into the, vo the voting booth. That is one of the most interesting thing about American politics. We'll never get this. We'll never get the numbers, but it would be so interesting if you could run like a secret poll 
on how many elected officials, top elected officials don't yeah. believe in God that, right. uh, that aren't, that aren't open about it. And isn't that right. interesting that we, that, you know, you still have to play that game t- in order to play in politics. Yeah. I don't know if in our lifetime we'll have like an atheist or a nun president. I, d- I don't know if that'll happen in our lifetime because literally every question at press conferences would be like, how do you, um, have any sense of morality if you don't believe in a higher power. That would be every question. And you'd spend so much time having to explain that, or she would have so much yeah. time having to explain that. Whereas Trump just gets to do, you know, whatever he wants and then just holds the Bible and takes a picture and yeah. um, has a base, right? So anyway, it's it, it was a it was a tactic by Christianity when they felt threatened after the 60s, but they're paying for um, they're, they're paying a cost, especially with the youth for getting in bed with politics essentially. Mm. And so we'll see if that backfires for them. Um, we'll see if they react to that and we'll, nobody really knows what's going to happen with that. Um, how they're going to continue to be, to be politically powerful in the United States. Mm, love it. Great stuff. Okay, so the next one, I think you mentioned this before, that Gen Z has a mistrust of institutions, a distrust of authority. Um, So this group has a significant trust issues when it comes to formal religious institutions. When asked to rate their trust of organized religion on a 10-point scale, 63% of young people answered five or below, including those who are affiliated with a religious tradition. So that number is including those who go to church. So most are distrusting of, of um, organized religion. And that is a new number. We've never had that much distrust in organized religion. In the past, that would be who you would trust. You would trust your pastor or your bishop or your whatever. Um, and so that is a big shift, this distrust of authority. Yeah, I'm just sitting and thinking about like degrees of transparency. For instance, I look at the top there and I see, you know, nonprofit organizations and I get there's probably a thousand other things that were voted on besides just these 10 or whatever it is, eight things. But um, in my mind, the younger generation is paying particular attention to things like transparency and they want more transparency. And so uh, certain kinds of organizations, such as a nonprofit, has to be transparent. Uh, If you request the financials of a nonprofit, they have to give them to you. Uh, For instance, our nonprofit here, uh, Mormon Discussion Incorporated, we post our financials on our website. Um, Same kind of thing with banks, right? Banks are a little more transparent. They're FDIC insured. There's kind of a sense that like it's that money's safe there, at least to some degree. You get told up front what your interest rate's going to be. But you work your way down and you can see that the lack of transparency is a big part of that loss of trust. Yeah. So you see at the bottom of the list, even the medical system, they understand there's like HIPAA, you know, there's HIPAA rules, there's protections. But with organized religions, they know that the first thing that they'll do is protect kind of the brand. They'll protect the name and not, you know, the sexual abuse addict. And then even lower than religion is stuff like Congress. Like they know 
that politicians are lying and that they're trying to get votes and that they placate and that they say things that they don't really mean and that um, they have less power to pass legislation than they say to do when they're running. They they know that. They get they that. They favor their district with pork barrel, you know, addendums they, to, to laws and so things like that. The at past, the bottom, know. yeah, media, Congress, big business, presidency. So they know. Mm. They know that it's not the whole truth because they have – they have the record of it, right? They can see it. They can go on TikTok and of any political candidate, you can do this with Obama, you can do this with anyone, will say something here and then kind of say something else over here. And you can splice them together and you can watch it in a 30 second video. Mm. So they, they know, you know, they know you can't hide that from them. Mm. All right. So let's talk about COVID and what that did. So we're still getting uh, reports back from how COVID affected religion. We haven't gotten... We'll have a better view of that, you know, obviously a decade from now. But the first reports that are coming back, and this is from Pew Research, not the Barna group that I was talking about before. So from Pew Research, it says that three in 10 adults say that the outbreak boosted their faith, which is the highest of any industrialized nation, with four in 10 saying that it tightened family bonds. So it's very common in times of calamity, in times of trial, that there's always an uptick of religious observance, right? Remembering family, remembering beliefs, remembering what's important. There'll be kind of an uptick of religious um, observance. And then it'll go back down. So for example, after 9-11, there was a surge in places of worship being filled to capacity, right? And then a year later, it had gone back down to where it was before. But the, the different thing about this that makes COVID unique is that in other times where there's, even if there's a plague or even if there's, um, you know, 9-11 or a war, um, you gather as a community and you go to church. But because COVID, we couldn't do that because the church is shut down. It had a different effect. So the early surveys are showing that this increased Gen Z leaving the pews, leaving going to churches that have, you know, a brick and mortar church house, um, because that was two years where they didn't have to go if, if their parents were forcing them to go, essentially. And so this the statistic is going to be a little bit different than other plagues or other kind of times that we've had where everybody gathers together as a family and extended family in church because we had to isolate. And in that isolation time, many young people began to realize I haven't gone to church for a year. I'm still doing okay. Maybe I won't, you know, go back if they were attending before. So I think it's actually going to increase Gen Z leaving organized religion, um, pew-based religion, because they had a, a a pretty big block of time where they weren't able to go, where they weren't doing that. Yeah, the faith that you and I come from, it feels like we are in a moment where they're panicking over the lack of missionaries, for instance, which has been a big deal over the last month or two in terms of how... Uh, uh, our old systems, religious leaders are approaching it. And I, I, not necessarily all religions. Again, we came from one that was, uh, I would label as a high demand fundamentalist religion. Not all of them are putting strains on people to the degree of the one that we came from. But in regards to ours and other high demand fundamentalist religions, you often are having so many responsibilities put on you, so many things to do that you don't really have time to think through 
whether you really believe it, what the church tells you, whether, whether you really want to stand for the things the church stands for and having that time away allows you not only to go like, Oh, I'm, I guess I'm okay without it, but it also allows you for the first time to not have this constant busy work. And you can begin to think you have hours every day to kind of think through what's working, what's not working in your life. I'm sure there were folks who read books and left because they, they read too much history, essentially, right? They read too much data. There's probably people who left because they didn't feel the weight on their shoulders of shame and guilt. There's probably people who left uh, because they realized that their time was of more value and that so much of it had been absorbed by the religious institution. There's probably a hundred reasons. Yeah. The big, the mind blowing statistic for me was that, and this is kind of separate from Gen Z, this is looking at the difference between men and women who are adults, is that um, what you're saying really rang true, especially for women. So women, when asked, you know, do you miss going to church? Women, um, sometimes even privately, because they still believed or whatever, privately admitted, you know, in these, in these surveys that it was such a relief to not have to wake up on Sunday and pack the toddler bag and print the lesson and make up the sign-up sheets. And uh, there's a lot of unpaid, unnoticed labor that goes on, particularly on the backs of women. And that mm. when they could just sit with their family on Sunday and just watch a movie and read a book and talk and, and whatever, without that huge responsibility, they reported that they didn't miss church and they loved on Sunday having the opportunity to fill their own spiritual cups. The fascinating thing is that men did not say the same thing. The men reported that they missed the social interaction. So what we're what that tells me about religion, organized religion specifically, is that a lot of it, a lot of it is built to give men the social interaction that they need that isn't out there in society. So it may be true that for a lot of men, maybe even most men, um, the circle that you have, you know, as men, second hour of church where you talk about things, that may be the only socially acceptable place where you talk about how to be a better dad, how to be a better husband, um, to cry without being ashamed, to talk about what you believe, to talk about your doubts. And uh, it really may be that the entire institution is unpaid labor by women to give men the social outlets that they need that they aren't getting in society. And so what happened when, when COVID happened is that the women reported it was so nice to not have to do all the sign-up sheets and the meetings and the and all the thing and packing the bags and do the kids have snacks and all, dressing the kids for church. It was such a relief to not have to do that, but the men and the women can have um, lunch dates with other girlfriends or have group texts and talk about their marriage and they can replace the social aspect, but the men couldn't, the men didn't. And they missed church really because they missed the social life of having other men around them and they didn't replace that. And so that tells me a lot. And it should be noted too that Christian religious text and at least to some degree, a portion of Christian religious theology is very much patriarchy, right? Very much like women are objects, women you know, are to be silent, women are to do this, women are to do that. Here's what men's roles are. And so I can imagine too, because of that, that men missed 
church maybe a little more than women because it held up those ideals because they're really valued right they get a lot of social things that they don't get in society but then also like what you're saying you get to stand up in a meeting and your word is gospel you get to Mm. have people come to you asking your advice and you feel good that you did something for someone else you know and i show up at church and the message is that the wife is to support the husband and to uh uh, essentially let him preside and be obedient to him as he's obedient to God. Right. And so the men are just getting these huge kind of social and ego and uh, yeah. meaning and purpose benefits that when we looked at COVID, they missed that. They didn't replace that. And the women w- finally were able to take a breath and fill their own spiritual cup. Mm. And then a lot of the women just didn't want to go back. So that was su- that was super, super interesting to watch. Um, yeah, as far as the kids, COVID affected family ties, the youth, uh, even though they got used to not going to church, if they were going to church, um, they did say that it increased their, um, family bonds. So there was that there was, uh, this was percent who say their relationship with immediate family members became stronger as a result of, of COVID. And so the family bonds did get stronger, um, but not in the sense of we go in as a family and go to church, which is what happened after 9-11, which is what happened when there were other kind of plagues and whatever going on in the world. So the family bonds increased, but the religiosity did not. Yeah. I think being stuck in your house for some of that time, not, it was, it was, uh, you know, it was, counseled against, encouraged not to taboo, to go out and to be part of the larger society. So you, by being home, you're certainly going to, more board games were played, more, Mm. uh, more activities in the house where you got the family together and did something. Maybe you had a movie, whatever it was. Yeah. I would say for me, I think our, our family bonds did increase, but I would also say that, uh, I took for granted kind of societal supports that helped me be a mom. So when I lost school and I lost the McDonald's playland and I lost the trampoline park and I lost, you know, park dates with friends and going to the YMCA. And when I lost, I I began to realize that, you know, raising a family, there were a lot of kind of community supports in order to help me be able to parent. And when I lost those, that was hard. That was really, really hard. And um, it's really interesting that during that time, mothers, especially mothers of young children, went a little bit crazy because, you know, you didn't have some of those social supports that you used to. Mm -hmm. And so I remember going to an LDS church parking lot and uh, we all sat in our trunk because it was when, you know, we really needed to isolate. So we sat in our trunk and it was in a circle. And these were um, active LDS women. <laughs> and we started passing around gummies that came from Oregon, let's say. I live in Idaho. Okay. <laughs> and these were active women, you know, but everybody had lost their minds to such an extent that it was like, if I don't go and see another adult and do something to bring my anxiety down, I'm going to shoot somebody. Mm. (laughs) And Mm. so it was the first time I got to sit around with, you know, active LDS women who I was friends with and, um, and, uh, you know, experience some anti-anxiety time. And so I, I do think it increased family bonds, but I do think that mothers, 
took on a lot during that time and really got burned out during that time too. Just to say too, I didn't experience this. And, and obviously you're talking about the women's side of it, but I'm just talking about COVID. And, and here's why I, I worked for a pawn shop, which lends out money. And like the rest of the banking industry, we got the, you know, the uh, exception essentially exemption. So we continued running business as usual. And so I wasn't at home. I think I, I think there was a week or two where at the very beginning, everybody kind of had to close for a few days, but um, outside of that, like we kept doing business. So I, I didn't like, as you're sharing, and you kept, the, podca- and you kept podcasting, which is, yeah. other, you know, but you, you're sharing this anxiety felt and being unable to go out into public, unable to do the normal rituals of your life is certainly that makes perfect sense that it would add some serious anxiety to people and some serious negative emotions. Mm. All right. So the next slide here is Gen Z rejects that there's one way and that they also report that religion is not important. So Gen Z has rejected the way religion has sought to shape their um, forms of gender and sexual identity and expression. If the religion of their parents tells them that there's a certain right way to be a woman or a sexual person, they reject this one right way. They just see too many people flourishing in their lives in different ways that they just can't buy that anymore. Um, and so it's interesting watching the churches like the one we came from where the bread and butter is, this is the one true way. There are other churches that also claim that too. It's interesting to see how they're faring, um, when Gen Z wants no part of that narrative, they just don't believe it at all. And so, uh, and then also they're reporting that, um, while their parents say that religion is important, um, there was this study where they did parents and teens and 43% of the parents said that religion was really important, but the teens of those parents, only 25% of those teens said that religion was important. Um, and so it's just not as important to them as it is for their parents. Yeah. This, the one in the top left corner there, 52% of affiliated young people have little to no trust in organized religion. That seems so significant uh, that more than half the population of that group doesn't has little almost nothing or no trust in institutional religion and a third attend religious services once a year or less so that's even mm-hmm. like you know going to a mass on christmas like cne we're barely even getting that yeah yeah, yeah. all right and then rituals here so they do not rely on on tradition for rituals. So seven, even though 75% of Gen Z said they had a religious background, there was a religion present in the home. Only 18% said that they planned to observe formal traditions at their wedding. So 87% saw themselves making their own traditions. They don't need to go to the church in order to validate their death, a death, a birth, a religion. And that's really different from times in the past. Um, The parents and grandparents, even if you were atheist, even if you didn't believe when it was time to get married, you went to the church. Like that was just, that's just what you do. You still show up at the church. And we're seeing with this generation that um, even those that were raised in a particular religious kind of background, they don't go to the church for a wedding. 
they want to do their own wedding. They want to plan it themselves. They want to write their own rituals, right? And that's really different than um, even unbelievers, even nuns in previous generations. It's going to be interesting to see what happens over the next 20 years of the religions that deeply soften up and go like, no, like let's make room that people can do things kind of their own way. And the religions that want to hold on to some of it and say, nope, this is the one way. This is the way, the truth, the light, you know, this is the, the, the only true path that gets you back to God. Every, the, all the rituals have to be done exactly this way. We have to be exclusionary in these, in these uh, uh, sorts of ways. And it's going to be interesting to see in a couple of decades, if those kinds of churches do better than the ones who make space for nuance and adaptability and people to do things kind of to the beat of their own drum. Yeah, the tension here is that as a church, like if you were a pastor of a certain church, the people paying tithing and showing up and being really dedicated are the older generation. And so if you completely cut off that narrative to serve Gen Z, you're going to cut off your rich, powerful, devout base. And so it's this, I, I see churches and I see pastors do this. They want to, they start adding like, oh, it's youth Zoom time or whatever. They're trying to do things for the youth, but they're definitely not wanting to go fast enough to um, kind of offend the base. And they're stuck in between these two really different generations yeah. um, who have different needs, who have different spiritual needs, have different ways of looking at the world. And so what do you do? Do you throw your money into the future? But then for a while, it's going to be super unsteady and you're going to lose your base and you're going to lose your money and you're going to lose all your devout members. Um, or do you kind of, hold to that group and just kind of throw these little nuggets at Gen Z, which is usually what I see um, because they're really stuck between two really different generations. And that, that would be really hard to figure out how to navigate through that. If you, if you don't cater to the younger generation, every church is a generation or two away from dying. Right. So if, if we allow the tithe payers, yeah. the older generation to uh, feel supported, and in the meantime, uh, 80% of the younger generation vanishes from church. Now you've got nothing in 20 years, you know? Yeah. And in the past, though, they could do that slowly. They could, like, yeah. make that transition and, like, slowly Christianity uh, began to will change some things or whatever. But they've never had to do it. Any religion has never had to like literally turn on a dime and change that quickly. They've never yeah. had to. And you can see why they're struggling with it. They've never had to um, placate these two uh, two generations that are this far apart. Yeah. And you're seeing maybe, f again, in the system we came from, one thing I think they're trying to do is they're teaching a very different theology and curriculum to the younger generation and allowing the older generation to hang on to the old stuff. And so mm. essentially it's two different theologies, two different sets of doctrine, mm. two different approaches to religion. Um, and, and they're, they're yeah. not overlapping exactly. You're totally right. It's bringing in the new without denouncing the old to try to placate both. And so yeah. you do have these competing theologies and kids in seminary are getting different things. But the old seminary manual was never like, hey, we're not doing this anymore. It just kind of like quietly disappears, right? <laughs> but that may backfire too, because then you end up with more disagreement 
in the home between parents and children as one generation goes, no, no, of course we believe the earth is this or the, mm-hmm. this is what we have to do, or this is how these doctrines work. And the younger generation's like, no, they just taught me this week that it's the exact opposite of what you've said. Mm-hmm. So that may not work out well either. It's tough. I, I, you know, I can be empathetic that that would be a hard place to be in. If, you know, if you really are a pastor and you really believe and you want to, you know, be like Jesus and try to serve a community, a religious community, that would be really difficult there. Here's a quote from, I read a book as part of this, um, part of studying Gen Z. It was called a uh, Gen Z curriculum of discipleship. And it was a book that was published to give to churches to try to help them, um, with their Gen Z problem essentially. And so here's a quote that just like, this is just so typical of, um, one way that churches are responding to this. So quote, this is from Judy Tadros who wrote this book that's very popular in um, Christian churches trying to figure out Gen Z and how to disciple to them. So the quote says, what distinguishes pastors is that God commissions them to teach his truth to his people, the church. They are the voice of absolute truth in a world that is contrary to it. Gen Z is a generation living in a world that pushes God away, making them the... making them think that God is an option rather than the only way, the truth, and the life. It is for this reason the church, especially pastors and teachers of the word of God, are key in denouncing these heretic beliefs in a world going further away from the biblical truth of Jesus Christ. This is literally in a book that is for, like, no sarcasm, in a book that is for pastors on how to deal with Gen Z. And it's basically that they're, they're um, falling away from God, which isn't even true. They're just leaving church, right? As we talked about. And that you have the voice of God, you have the truth, you have the absolute truth, and the world is falling away and pulling them away and Satan's pulling them away and you have to save them and you have to bring them back into this order that's the only way. And you can see that that entire message is not going to resonate with Gen Z at all. But it's what they're trying to do because that is the tool that they've always used, that the world is bad and you're safe here and this is the way and this is the path. And so they're still trying to do that and it's not going well. It's not going well for them. Mm. Yeah, but that's what happens when institutions feel threatened. As you pointed out, two things could happen. And one of them is you entrench harder. You, You push back harder against this lost and fallen world. And these kids already are picking up on that that doesn't that doesn't hold up. So you just create a larger divide, more more tension. Especially when they see, and this was another big one. I don't think I put this in here, but um, when moral leaders are no longer the people of the church, because if they see that people outside the church are fighting for people to have more rights if they're LGBTQ, and the church is not, or even that their church is fighting against that. The church is no longer their moral authority. The church is no longer giving them a moral education. They're getting that they feel outside of church. And so that becomes Mm. a problem too. All right. So loneliness, this is, this is the problem with Gen Z is that um, they're in need of leadership. So even though they're not turning to churches as often and that number is only increasing. Young people still need adults in their lives to guide them during challenging and uncertain times. So an interesting statistic is that um, 
24% of young people say that they never feel that their life has meaning and purpose. So that's a quarter of young people. But with just one adult mentor, that number dropped to 6%. And so a similar trend for loneliness, 58% of those with no adult mentors say that they um, sometimes have someone to talk to, but that number drops again to 48% with just one adult mentor. And so the disconnect, the hard thing for this generation is that as they're distrusting organized religion, and rightly so, there's a lot of things to distrust. Mm. The problem is, um, how are they getting adult mentors they can trust? Where can they show up to be part of something where an adult can has a job to keep an eye on them, to give them advice, to check on them, to say, how are you doing? They don't have that right now. Right. And so how... If you, you know, and we've talked about this before as far as, okay, where is this going? Um, one of the problems with where this is going is that Gen Z is incredibly lonely, in need of adult mentors, and there's no societal place to provide that for them. And so how do we deal with that? You know, where are youth groups in the secular world? And uh, even That's the organizations... The even the organizations that attempt to do that, um, the Boy Scouts has its own ethical issues that it's run into. Um, there just really isn't um, a lot of these kinds of spaces. And so uh, you're really talking about it. Does school fill that, right? Does school groups and sports teams and clubs and things in school have to kind of pick up the slack? Or we have to create, as we've been talking about for months, have to create something new to replace it. Yeah, there's just no place where where they're getting adult mentorship. And it's something that I'm aware of as I'm trying to raise my kids in this is one of the reasons that I have my kids in karate is because they're these really cool teachers that teach them about, you know, personal responsibility and, um, you know, morals and be like Bruce Lee and all these cool things. Right. And I mm. literally am paying. So it may be because we've deconstructed, there may never be like a one-stop shop anymore for you to get all the benefits that religion used to provide. But mm. as people are piecing it together, you know, people who teach karate, but with, with morality, we're going to pay that person to do that, to fill in that hole. Right. Mm. And so it may be that we do this in a deconstructed way, but we at least need to recognize that Gen Z doesn't have um, me adult mentors. And maybe the future is we start paying people to do that. I don't know. Yeah. Therapy is also, they're more open to therapy. So they at least will have hope, you know, there's not the mental stigma with therapists. That's one piece in place, hopefully for them. Yeah, the, the only reason I'm hesitating is because we have a problem in this um, in this space that when we allow people to kind of self-select themselves to help out children and youth, what you end up with is the really unhealthy individuals of that society tend to find them who who have uh, unhealthy behaviors towards child children, pedophilia, that kind of thing. Those people tend to gravitate towards those types of places because that's a safe space where they get to interact with children. And so as we create new kinds of groups that uh, allow adults to mentor to the youth, 
I think I'm just in the back of my head going, we still have to figure out a way so that we don't end up with the same thing that happened in Catholicism, but now it just happens in a secular group. Like we still have to solve problems. Yeah, totally. And so you'll see that states are doing this where they, if you work with youth, you know, you have to pass this back and it, it doesn't weed out everyone, but it's yeah. at least something, you know? And so, you know, maybe that, gets filled by other areas of society, but you're right. It is going to be different because when I take my kid to karate, I'm there and I'm signing up for it and I consent to it and my kid consents to it. Um, but I, I'm never like, I don't leave them. It's not one-on-one -on -one in like a private karate studio and I just drop them off and leave. Right. It's, it's, it's safer. So maybe those things will have to change because we are so much more aware now of, um, you know, child predators and how they can thrive in certain organizations. So yeah, it may be deconstructed. It, it may look different for each family um, because we just don't have the one-stop shop religions anymore, mm -hmm. but they need adult mentors. And so if you're listening and, you know, you have teens, um, are they hearing the morals that you teach from other adults that are not you and how can you access that? I don't have the answer to it, but at least we can ask the question and start trying to piece that together. Yeah. All right. So I think that's the end of, of the slides that I have, but we, I have a couple more things about Gen Z and then we'll wrap up here. Uh, other, so although they do have some problems, you know, loneliness, uh, isolation, need of mentorships, there are four major values where they're leading the way. And I always want to do this because so often when we talk about the youth, we talk about that they're online too much. Um, and it's, you know, we talk about their problems, but there's, but there's four ways things that they are leading the way on that we just need to recognize. So that one is obviously diversity. Um, when it comes to who sits with, you know, the marginalized, the outcasts, the sex workers, the second class citizens, as Jesus did, it's Gen Z that's leading the way. They're the ones that are most likely to be the good Samaritan. And so it makes me so sad when I read paragraphs like the one that I just read to you, where the lady's like, you know, we just, you got to get them on the Bible and the absolute hammer it harder. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Hammer it harder without realizing, no, they, in this scenario, they are the good Samaritan. They are more likely than any of us to stop and hear someone else's story, to stop and hear and stand up against injustice. Mm -hmm. And so whenever we talk to youth as if they're lost, when they're leading the way in something, there's going to be a disconnect. They're not going to feel loved and valued because you're telling them that this is the way without recognizing, Hey, you guys do this really well. Like, why don't you lead this discussion on diversity? Why don't you tell me the story of the good Samaritan and a time that you've had that in your life rather than me tell it at you. Right. Because they're leading the way there. Uh, openness. Gen Z does not debate Bible verses or lose their faith doing deep dives into philosophy and theology. They don't have the same theological baggage as their parents. They are open to redefining Christianity and religion without requiring a lot of work to get there. So because they don't, because they are so open, what if the churches do decide to make big shifts, they're on board with that. They're not stuck on any particular, you know, verse that has to be the way that it is. And so that is one opportunity is that if churches did decide that we really want to pivot in order to be relevant to the next generation, 
Gen Z is open to that because they don't have the same theology background as their parents and grandparents where it's like, we can't do that because of this verse. They're not going to do that. I was going to say, whatever, whatever the data bears out, right? Like they're not forced into these pigeonholes of going like, oh, my church says that this is the way it has to be. And even though I feel this internal tension <sighs> that what they're doing isn't right, uh, it, old generations would just go like, I'm just to go along with that. Like my job is not to question. This is how we do things. They must be right. I must be wrong about my feelings. And this younger generation goes like, no, this internal conversation going on inside. Uh, I trust that. I trust that I've worked out the right way to treat a human being, regardless of what my religious institution says. Um, to the extent, again, not to go back to ours, but in our religious system, they still have this old way of doing things, for instance, with people of color. And then, and then in the modern moment, they're trying to pretend like they've always been on board. Like we're, you know, we, mm -hmm. we are the ones who do this thing, right. And they don't really want to have a conversation about it. And I think the kids kind of sense like, man, you guys were really unhealthy back then and you really haven't solved the problem yet. And, uh, and I just don't, again, goes back to trust. They just don't trust these institutions because they've been let down, they've seen how this has all played out, and they've figured out by this point um, that their inner gut gives them better answers than trusting these uh, these systems. Yeah, they're getting a lot more information on TikTok. I mean, than than we ever did. I mean, we had to read books and really dive into these rabbit holes, and they just get you know. They, they'll get a leader that says something and then 50 years later, it's the opposite. And it just pops up on TikTok for 10 seconds and they get it. They didn't have to do the historical mm. work to get there. Like we had, no. we used to have yeah. to, right. Yeah. I mean, I was 20 years ago. I mean, there were times I was reading microfilms to try to like make sense of polygamy. Like if you want to go into like ex Mormon, TikTok, Reddit within two minutes, you know, you can, you can get all, a lot of information. And I was, you know, hours in the library trying to find it. And so it's just a, they're much more open because they just have more information than we yeah. ever did. The other one is empathy. So empathy is sometimes viewed from older adults as being overly sensitive, politically correct snowflakes, but they, um, but treading lightly on people's experiences, giving space for other spiritual journeys, being compassionate. Um, they're really leading the way in, in empathy, which we should, we should value, you know, we should, instead of always talking about they need to change and why do they do this and that um, value that they're leading the way in empathy. And the last one is relationships, which you've talked about. Uh, while some while some churches may say people over principle, it is Gen Z that most lives by it and recognizes when the church actually doesn't. So if the church acts says we stand for the marginalized, we're going to be like Jesus and we da da da, and then the sex scandal comes out and it was very clear that you didn't, they are the most they are the most tuned in to recognize that, right? Mm. So Gen Z values authenticity, vulnerability, and true connection over slick marketing, overly structured programming. Lawyers also. Uh, they won't huh. be drawn into churches by graphic design, lighting, set 
production or even by a young hip pastor. Like most everyone, they will come into the church, they will come to a church where they haven't been invited by friends, where there are people that look like them on the stage and in the staff, and that uh, their doctrine and religious rules won't mean anything to them if it excludes their friends, especially those in the LGBTQ community. It's just a no-go. If I don't yeah. see people that look like me, if I don't see diversity, if I don't see, if if you talk about loving others, but your doctrine is hurting my LGBTQ self or friends, it's just not going to go. I'm not, I'm not playing this game. It's a tall order for them, for them, meaning the churches, to come up with a religious approach that is um, internally coherent, that meshes and doesn't seem like they're talking out both sides of their mouth. Yeah. So the last thing, and this surprised me, like some of this, you and I have been, um, you know, having conversations like this for long enough, we can kind of intuit some of these statistics. This one surprised me. It's shocking to me. And I think parents really need to understand this. Parents need to know how much of kids spirituality these days is being led by TikTok tarot readers. I think we underestimate how much the young people and the kids are getting their spirituality from that source. And because, you know, parents and grandparents, they're not on TikTok, they may not fully understand what they're even watching on TikTok or what TikTok is. I think we need to realize, so the, the recent data shows that 51% of young people engage in tarot cards or other fortune telling practices divination practices are even popular so 78 percent of mormon youth will mm. follow and engage with some kind of tarot fortune telling horoscope something for atheist kids it is the lowest um but it, even in so the interesting thing is if you are in a high demand fundamentalist religion that feels really suffocating what we're seeing is the outlet for that is tarot, occult, divination. If you want to hear Bill and I talk about that, we did a whole episode on that that you can go back and listen to. Um, and that they are getting that specifically on social media and that they follow that and they play with that and they're interested in that and they're curious about it and they spend a lot of time there. And I think we're underestimating that that is where they're getting a lot of their spirituality. Man, I'm, I'm just, I'm just looking at that. That does surprise me. Again, it was what Russian Greek Orthodox 78.1 Mormon 69.4 Jewish 62.1. I would have never expected those things to be as high as they are. And, and we came from, you know, again, Mormon, we came from this system that in the 1980s, 1990s, very clearly spoke out against these things, but the materials that did that have been done away with. And it would be hard pressed today. Again, the more rigid the church gets, the more likely it is to lose these this younger generation. It'll be interesting to see how these religions respond to those kinds of statistics. Yeah. So some. So from from this study, some responses that I that showed up is that uh, this sixteen year old wrote, "Our generation has already been distancing our." ourselves from institutions. The main three Abrahamic religions leave little to our own interpretation of scripture. So, right. Mm -hmm. So because authenticity is so important, they have to have room to kind of find their own and interpret their own spiritual path. That's very important to them. And so mm -hmm. it, 
continuing the quote with tarot and similar practices, we're open to interpret what we want to think for ourselves and make our own guidelines when it comes to spirituality, which is why I think a lot of people resonate with it. So if you're not getting the flexibility at church and the parents and grandparents and the one true way and all of that, where that shows up is, wow, I really like playing with tarot cards because I get to interpret what this means for my life. And they never have had that much freedom and given permission to do that. So another, so another response, 22 year old, I think crystals are like saints for young people and spirituals. Sometimes you just need something or someone that is rooted in courage. And so they don't have like solid beliefs about how tarot really interacts with planets and all of that. Uh, I don't think it's super sophisticated because they are young. We're talking about teens, but it's kind of like their saints or their scripture reading because they get to kind of interpret what they want. They get to check in with their inner self and kind of feel around there. Um, and then for the crystals, you know, a lot of them don't know if it's real or not or how it's real or be able to explain that scientifically, but it, I'm going to hold this and I'm, this is my gratitude. Uh, crystal. That's the same thing as having a saint of gratitude or a saint of this or a saint of that. Right. right? And yeah. so that's how they're getting that. And so it's super interesting to see that um, in, in the longer history of Christianity, whenever Christianity got too um, rigid, paganism would have a big rise and then Christianity would steal the cool things going on in paganism and it would go down and could become more flexible and then it would get kind of ossified again and then paganism would come up and so we're seeing a huge rise in the occult in tarot in horoscopes in new paganism in earthy kind of um you know doing drums in a full moon and that kind of that kind of spirituality we're seeing a huge surge of that bigger than I was really intuiting yeah and what i notice in this section is there is this wrestle between inner authority and outer authority and when you use crystals when you're like you said when when these quotes point to people want to have a tool that they can listen to their own inner voice rather than as the one guy said the main three abrahamic religions leave little to our own interpretation of scripture these kids do not want it imposed on them things that feel contrary and um, the things they don't agree with that are going on inside of them. It's, it's the interesting thing when you take that bird's eye view and get to see, oh, people aren't getting this. And then you'll see kind of the transition to where they get it somewhere else, right? If you do that in Christianity, you can see that over time. And so whenever things, yeah, get too too structured, too ordered, there'll just be a rise of, the, you know, the pagan and the earth and the personal revelation and the personal intuitions. So all of that is on the rise kind of as this pendulum swing always goes back mm. and forth. But mm. the interesting thing is, so only 1 million U.S. adults identify as like pagan or Wiccan, but the shocking statistic for me was six in 10 Americans ascribe to at least one new age belief. So this would be astrology, psychics, crystals, spiritual energy, whatnot. So six in 10 Americans ascribe to at least one of those. And so we're seeing that because religions didn't give the flexibility and the earth and the um, carving your own path and what does your intuition say, basically there's this 
there's this surge to reject religion and go over to these kind of new age beliefs, which are all about that. Mm. Yeah, no, no, good stuff. I, I, I'm just sitting here thinking about like um, the the idea that 60% have some new age belief. And if that many people are experiencing those things, they're also feeling something from that, right? Like it's not like it's a one and done. Uh, that statistic is too high. There's some consistency there. So religion comes along and says, we have the real magic and you have spiritual experiences within those constructs. And now 60% of the, these folks are in some other construct and they're still having experiences. And what that's going to do is again, open them up even more to go, I don't need to be in a particular place to have spiritual experiences they can be accessed in a whole multitude of ways. It's got nothing to do with whether something's true or false. You and I are both very skeptical of these new age practices as well. Um, whether they are literally the real magic doesn't matter. To some degree, they work nonetheless. Yeah, yeah, they work because you know your intuition can. It's a. It can be a conversation with your subconscious, and that can be very enlightening. Um, the interesting thing is that. So big business has taken notice of this. So places like Urban Outfitters, you can buy crystals and tarot cards and ritual kits where you sage your house and you have like Gwyneth Paltrow who will like tell you to put jade up your vagina and sell you water bottles that have amethyst in them and all of that. And just tons you must have of- see my candle collection. Oh my gosh. I'm Yeah, anyway. And- uh, you know, influencers who will read tarot on Instagram that just have thousands and hundreds of thousands of followers. But the interesting thing is it's not really gathered, right? So only 1 million adults identify as pagan or Wiccan and go to kind of like witch gatherings. Um, and so this is being done individually. And so I wonder as the pendulum is swinging from organized religion to this kind of individual because we just had a need for individuals who weren't being seen. I wonder if, you know, after a hundred years of everybody doing sage by themselves or crystals by themselves, I wonder if that will start to, or, you know, you get lonely, you want to do this with other people. I wonder if it'll swing towards some of those things being more organized, whereas right now it's really not organized. It's something that's happening, especially with kids on social media by themselves, but they're not gathering in groups, which is interesting. Maybe that will come as the pendulum swings back. And, and if you do that, you start to get in groups, all of a sudden somebody has to be in charge maybe, and, and then you end up maybe with more gurus and there's all kinds of unhealthiness that can come from that path as well. Yeah. Well, we'll watch it as it goes. And then the last thing I have is that Gen Z is interested in political causes. A lot of them say that they really experience Christianity or spirituality with political causes. So, um, they're at the forefront of things like Black Lives Matter and their, or human rights, gun control, environmental protection. And to them, social justice and equality is more than just catchphrases. It is a sense their spirituality. Um, so more than half of Gen Zers have engaged in acts of protest as a religious or spiritual practice. So I think we also have to recognize that 
you know, some older generation like to just call Gen Z your snowflakes and you're getting involved in politics because you're offended at everything and you're being politically correct. What you don't realize, what we don't realize often is that this is how they're showing up spiritually. This is how they're showing up in community with others on behalf of something that's bigger than them. And so uh, many, you know, if Christian churches, of course, now they really can't because they got in bed with right politics. But um, if if Gen Z, you know, had a church where the pastor went with them to um, political causes that they cared about that seemed to be in line with with Jesus and New Testament, um, that is really where they're showing up. But mm. they the pastors can't go there because of the power of the Christian right and mm. how many people they would lose if they showed up to something like Black Lives Matter. And so again, it's like this split, what does the pastor do when um, it becomes so political in your, you know, in your religious community uh, where the Gen Zers are very religious and spiritual about showing up with political causes. But then of course the Christian right is so powerful and it has its own narrative now they're at odds with each other. Mm, good stuff. All right. So I think that's, I think that's it for me. So what does Gen Z do as they become adults? So what does the future of religion look like just based on looking at this generation? So the future has the occult, um, new age stuff, new paganism, political movements, distrust of institutions, the belief in the higher power and God is still active. They're not majority atheists. They, last tr they lack trustworthy adults as mentors, and they have anxiety about the future of our world and humanity. And so it'll be really interesting to see. All estimations show that, you know, within the next 20, 40, 50 years, religion in order to survive is going to have to make some big changes. And you and I will be here for as long as we're here talking about it. Yeah, we'll see what happens. Yeah. All right. And then last thing that I wanted to say, um, you know, Bill and I do like to listen to podcasts in order to prepare for certain things, but there is no other person that went through the data that we just did. And so, you know, if we had an exclusive channel, that would have been exclusive content. So if that was interesting to you, um, that really is this, this is material that I haven't seen anyone else do the way that we just did. So if that was interesting and helpful for you, especially if you're a, a parent of Gen Zers, um, toss us a couple bucks so we can keep finding content that is relevant that you can't find anywhere else. Yeah. And I'll just say Brit put a lot of time into creating the PowerPoint, uh, grabbing quotes, putting each of these, the commentary on each of these slides together Folks, if you if you can support the podcast, almostawaken.org, click the donate button, and as Britt's pointing out, you know, send us a few bucks a month. Um, Britt really is uh, working hard to try to bring each of you content that helps you kind of navigate this second half of life as you've deconstructed religion, but as we try to talk about each week, find useful ways to still have the good things that religion brings us. And uh, Britt, I think you're doing a fantastic job of it. So, folks, please. Don't hesitate to support her and to support this work. Always fun to chat, Bill. And this was like, this was the thing that I really wanted to research when I was in school. So I was so excited to share it with all of you. And um, cool. yeah, the I'm, I'm, I'm just really excited to see how much change can happen in the next 20 years. And hopefully as we continue to grow this podcast, we'll be able to be commentators for the entire ride. Yeah. And <laughs> I did put the no PDF. 
Yeah. I did put the PDF of the PowerPoint. It'll be on every place where the podcast is available. Uh, so you can get it there and I'll, I'll share the outline there too, so that folks can pull those quotes up and in the different directions that you went in today. Um, a lot of work went into this. We're going two hours in now and, uh, just want to say thank you for all that you do. Yeah. Thanks, Bill. And thanks everybody for listening who went on this ride with us and take care of yourselves. There's lots of planets in retrograde. Hey, have a great day. All right. Bye. This has been another Almost Awakened episode. Check us out at almostawakened.org where you can check out past episodes, make a donation to keep this podcast running, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources shared in today's episode. For coaching opportunities or extra support, visit nonsensespirituality.com to meet with certified spiritual director Brittany Hartman.